Section 47 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 45, The Early Tudors, by James Gardner, Part 2. The year 1500 was a year of jubilee at Rome, and in England a period of domestic peace seemed to have begun. Henry was much stronger now in his relations with foreign princes. The stoppage of trade with the Netherlands, owing to the support given to Warbeck there in 1493, had been long since ended. From the first it had been found intolerable, especially on the other side of the Channel, and on February 24, 1496, a commercial treaty was concluded in London between the two countries. This did not, indeed, prove a complete settlement, and was followed by further treaties in July 1497 and May 1499. But a better understanding was growing up, and in 1498 the English merchants returned to Antwerp, where they were received of a general procession. On May 8, 1500, Henry VII with his queen crossed to Calais, where they remained until June 16th. On June 9th they had a meeting with Archduke Philip, in which most cordial relations were established, and marriages proposed between the two families, which, however, did not take effect. This meeting seems to have quickened the anxiety of Ferdinand and Isabel of Spain at length, to give effect to the long-talked-of match of their daughter Catherine, which they had repeatedly delayed until they should be convinced of the stability of Henry's throne. She was sent to England in 1501, landed at Plymouth on October 2nd, and after travelling slowly up to London, entered the city on November 12th. She was received with a vast amount of pageantry and scenic displays, and a marriage took place at St Paul's on Sunday the 14th. Amid the rejoicings which followed, came ambassadors from Scotland to negotiate another marriage, that namely of James IV with Margaret, the treaty for which was concluded on January 24, 1502. Next day the marriage was celebrated by proxy at Richmond, but on April 2nd following to the inexpressible grief of Henry and his queen, Prince Arthur died at Ludlow, and next year, 1503 and February 11th, died his mother, the Queen, leaving Henry a widower. In the following summer he conducted his daughter as far as Northamptonshire on her way to Scotland, and she was married to James at Edinburgh on August the 8th. Meanwhile, a new danger for Henry had sprung up. Edward de la Pole, the brother of the Earl of Lincoln, who had supported Simmel, had succeeded on his father's death to the Dukedom of Suffolk, but as the family estate had suffered seriously from his brother's attainder, he arranged with the king on the restoration of a part of the property to bear the title of Earl of Suffolk only. In 1498 he killed a man in a passion, but after being indicted received the king's pardon. In the summer of 1499 he escaped over sea to Calais and was going on to the court of Margaret of Burgundy in Flanders 
when ambassadors on their way from Henry the Seventh to the Archduke Philip persuaded him to return. He was with the king at his meeting with Philip in 1500, but in August 1501 he escaped abroad again, together with his younger brother Richard, relying on a promise which Maximilian, king of the Romans, had made to Sir Robert Curzon, that he would help him to obtain the crown of England. Sir Robert had been captain of Hames Castle, but had a desire to go and fight for Maximilian against the Turks, and he obtained leave of the king to give up his post for that purpose on August 29, 1499. This date must have been just after Suffolk's first flight, and there is reason to suspect that leave to give up his post was granted to him, on an understanding that he would act as a spy on Suffolk for the king, and ascertain whether the factious Duchess Margaret was disposed to encourage him as she had encouraged Simmel and Warbeck in Flanders. In fact, he simulated flight like one out of favour with his king, but the Duchess Margaret had already been obliged to apologise for the countenance she had given to Warbeck, and it does not appear that she was prepared to encourage Suffolk. At all events, it was by convincing the Earl that he would receive no support from foreign princes even from France, Spain, Portugal, Scotland, or even from Philip, who was no less an ally of Henry than were the others, that the king's ambassadors persuaded him to return. This, however, was just before the judicial murder of Warwick, an act which aroused a great deal of resentment in England. And Curzon, when he reached the court of Maximilian, gave expression to the general feeling about the murders and tyrannies of the King of England, and it was then that Maximilian declared himself willing to help Suffolk to obtain the crown. The Earl reached Maximilian in the Tyrol, and was most kindly received, but he was put off with repeated excuses on account of the enmity between England and Maximilian's son Philip. He was sent to Achan for aid, and various schemes fell through. Maximilian, in truth, since the day he promised to help him, had been drawn by overtures from Henry, and though he still had the will to some extent, his means were not equal to his will. Meanwhile, several friends of Suffolk in England were imprisoned, and the Earl himself, along with Curzon and other fugitives abroad, were denounced as traitors at Paul's Cross. November 7, 1501 next communicated on the strength of a papal bull. Suffolk ran into debt at Achan, even for the necessaries of life, while, of course, all his property in England was confiscated. But on June 20, 1502, a treaty was made at Antwerp between Henry and Maximilian, in which the latter was promised £10,000 for his war against the Turks, on condition that he would not harbour any English rebels, even of ducal dignity, to which Suffolk still laid claim, and the money was paid to him at Augsburg on July 28th, the day on which he confirmed the treaty. Aiken, however, was a free city of the empire, and Maximilian was slow to fulfil his pledges and procure Suffolk's banishment. And now, notwithstanding Henry's treaties with foreign princes, some would have been glad to get Suffolk into their hands, in order to use him like Warbeck as a check upon England. 
Spain demanded his surrender from the city of Aachen under the spacious guise of friendship to Henry, but was refused. In the spring of 1504, however, the Earl had hopes of assistance from Duke George of Saxony, hereditary governor of Friesland, who apparently desired to get him into his hands only as a means of bargaining for Henry's assistance against the town of Groningen, which still withstood his authority. The Earl obtained a passport from the Duke of Gelders to enable him to pass through his country to Friesland, and was permitted to depart from Aachen leaving his brother Richard as a hostage to his creditors for payment of his debts. But notwithstanding his safe conduct, the Duke of Gelders caused him to be taken and confined at Hatton, so the Duke of Saxony was foiled of his prize, and it was feared that the Duke of Gelders would make use of him in the same way, to bid for Henry's assistance in his quarrels with his neighbour, the Archduke Philip, who since the death of Queen Isabel in November 1504, was called King of Castile, in right of his wife, Juna. Gerdas, however, appears to have got nothing out of Henry, when in July 1505 King Philip's forces captured Zutphen and Hatton. Suffolk thus had a new custodian, but peace being immediately made between Philip and Gerdas, the former did not like to retain the fugitive in the teeth of his treaties with Henry, who was at that very time advancing money to him for his prospective voyage to Spain. He accordingly sent Suffolk back to Waggingham, where he was again in the Duke of Gelder's hands. Suffolk tried to escape, and then implored Philip to reclaim him, which apparently Philip did indirectly after receiving the last instalment of Henry's loan, whereupon Suffolk, coming into his hands again, was shut up in the castle of Namor. But early in 1506, Philip and his queen, Junior, having set sail for Spain, were driven by tempest on the coast of England. Henry at once saw his advantage, hospitably received them at his court, and wrung from Philip not only the surrender of the unhappy Suffolk, whose life he promised to spare, but a very important commercial treaty with Flanders, which settled some long-standing tariff disputes in a way that the Flemings continually resented afterwards as unjust and one-sided. Meanwhile, the deaths of Prince Arthur and the Queen had given rise to new marriage projects. As soon as the former event was known to Ferdinand and Isabel, they sent a special ambassador to England, empowered to demand repayment of the first instalment, all that was yet paid, of Catherine's dower, and that Catherine herself should be sent back to Spain with Henry bethird it to conclude a new marriage for her with his second son, Henry, soon afterwards created Prince of Wales. This last was clearly their aim, and as early as September 24, 1502, a draft treaty for the new marriage was drawn up in England, but it was not concluded until June 23, 1503. Application was made to Rome for dispensation, both by Spain and by England, but his issue was delayed first by the deaths of two popes within one year, and then by the necessity of special inquiry into the case. A brief ante dated December 26, 1503, was at length sent to Spain by the satisfaction of Queen Isabel on her deathbed, and a bull, almost verbally the same, was afterward issued with the same date, 
but owing to continued disputes between Henry the Seventh and Ferdinand, the marriage did not take place during the life of the former king. The fact that Catherine remained in England gave Henry a great advantage over Ferdinand in these diplomatic squabbles. When Henry found himself a widower in 1503, a shameful suggestion was brought forward that he might himself marry her instead of his son. It was probably meant only to alarm the Spanish court, and Isabel tried to meet it by offering him as a bride her niece, Juna, Queen of Naples, the younger of two dowager princesses who bore the same title and lived together at Valencia. After some time, Henry asked for this lady's portrait, and when on Isabel's death he sent three gentlemen to Spain to ascertain what hold Ferdinand still had upon Castile, he commissioned them also to visit the princesses and to report rather too minutely on her personal quality. Offers were further had out to him of a French match, either for his son or for himself and Maximilian, and Philip encouraged him to look for the hand of Maximilian's daughter, Margaret of Savoy. When Philip went to Spain, Margaret was left as regent of the Netherlands, and since his marriage with her would have given Henry the government of that country. This scheme was more than once the subject of negotiations, but she could not herself be induced to agree to it. A more repulsive match was for some time talked about, owing to Philip's early death, September 25, 1506, namely of his widow, the mad Queen Joanna of Castile which Henry could only have contemplated as a means of obtaining the control of her kingdom. But another project was afterwards set on foot, which tended the same way, and excited the most serious jealousy in Ferdinand. As Philip's son Charles, heir alike to the lands of the House of Austria, the dukedom of Burgundy and the throne of Castile, was but a child under tutelage of his grandfather Maximilian, Henry won the emperor over to an alliance, and a treaty was concluded at Calais, December 23, 1507, for the marriage of Prince Charles to the king's second daughter, Mary. Bonds were taken from various princes and towns in the Netherlands for the fulfilment of this treaty when the prince should come of age. On December 17, 1508, the Sieur de Bergs, who came over at the head of a distinguished embassy, married the princess by proxy. On the 21st, a rich jewel of the emperor, called the Fleur de Lis, was given in pawn to Henry for 50,000 crowns of gold. King Henry, who had been subject for some time to attacks of gout, died on April 21st, 1509. He had made his will on March 30th, leaving large bequests for masses and charitable objects, with strict injunctions to his executors, to make restitution for wrongs done in answer to all complaints. He was buried, according to his direction, in the gorgeous chapel he had himself built in Westminster Abbey. During his life he had amassed, it was said, as much gold as all other kings in Christendom put together. A more distinct and apparently well-founded statement is that at his death he left in bullion four and a half millions, besides abundance of plate and jewels. Doubtless, he has studied to keep a large reserve for his own security, and he made rebellions pay their own expenses in fines. But he had permitted agents, 
of whom the most notorious were Sir Richard Empson and Edmund Dudley, further to fill his exchequer by extortions, founded generally on antiquated processes of law, for which at the last he expressed remorse. The two great ministers, Cardinal Morton and Sir Reginald Bray, who had paved his way to the throne, had died long before him. They had no doubt given much judicious counsel during the anxieties of the first part of his reign. But in his latter years he was strong both at home and abroad, his friendship being sought after by all European princes. Henry the Eighth, fifteen o nine to nineteen. It was a new world altogether when Henry the Eighth, in his eighteenth year, succeeded his father upon the throne, with full exchequer and an undisputed title. The young king was at the commencement of his reign liberal and generous, and being handsome in person, highly accomplished, and fond of manly exercises, he was abundantly popular. The old king, just before his death, had desired to atone for past severities, and had issued a general pardon, which his successor at once renewed, accepting from it, however, among others, those instruments of extortion Empson and Dudley, who were arrested the very day after his accession. By his father's dying advice, moreover, the unfriendly policy towards Ferdinand of Aragon was dropped at once, and the king married Catherine on June the 11th. He was crowned with her on the 28th at Westminster. Dudley was found guilty of constructive treason at the Guildhall of London on July 18, 1509, and Empson at Northampton on August the 8th. The treason in both cases consisted in their having written to friends to come up to London armed, in anticipation of the old king's death, to help them to maintain their influence. Both Empson and Dudley were attained in the Parliament, which met in January 1510, and both were beheaded on Tower Hill on August 17th following. The bonds which they had wrung for many on various legal pretexts were one by one brought into chancery and counselled. It is noteworthy that Dudley, during his imprisonment, composed a treatise called The Tree of Commonwealth, in which he pointed out the chief dangers of the time, including that of the cruel administration of penal laws, in which he himself had taken so much part. The first two years of the king's reign were peaceful and happy, there were no events to chronicle but court pageants and tournaments, Christmas revels and May games, and when on January 1st, 1511, Catherine bore to the king a son named Henry, a new stimulus was given to these displays. But though a household was appointed for the royal infant, he died on February 22nd. That same month the king received a request from his father-in-law, Thurderland of Aragon, for the aid of fifteen hundred archers to make war on the moors of Barbary. The men were easily found, or placed under the command of Lord Darcy, but the expedition was unfortunate, for they had scarcely landed at Cadiz, when they found that Thurderland, pressed by France, had been obliged to make a truce with the moors, and their services were not required. The men, too, were ill-disciplined, became intoxicated with Spanish wines, had frays with the natives, and returned home in ill humour. Another expedition of 1,500 archers sent under the command of Sir Edward Poynings to the assistance of Margaret of Savoy, 
and the Burgundians against Gaudas was at first more satisfactory, for with their aid some places were captured and destroyed, August. But when after these successes siege was laid to Venlo, and it continued twenty-nine days, Pornings began to feel that their allies were making undue use of the detachment and had obtained leave to return home. Hereupon, the river being swollen by heavy rains, the Burgundians raised the siege and retired for the winter, wasting the country round about. Shortly before this began a misunderstanding with James the Fourth of Scotland, on account of acts of piracy stated to have been committed by his sea captain, Andrew Barton. The king sent out against him Lord Thomas Howard, eldest son of the Earl of Surrey, with his younger brother Edward, soon afterwards knighted and created Lord Admiral. In the Downs, Lord Thomas overtook Andrew Barton, who after a fierce fight fell into his hands, mortally wounded. His ship, the Lion, being captured of her crew by the Englishmen, who after a further chase, also took the bark, Jenny Perwin, the lion's consort, and brought them both to Blackwall on August the 2nd. The Scotch prisoners appealed to the king for mercy, confessing their offence to be piracy, and were sent out of the country. But James was exceedingly angry, and demanded redress for Barton's death and the capture of his two ships. In this year, 1511, King Henry VIII was also first drawn into continental politics. In 1508, the leading powers on the continent had combined against Venice in the League of Cambury, but France, the prime mover in the game, very soon alarmed her confederates, and especially Pope Julius II, by her successes in northern Italy. Pope Julius thereupon made friends with the Surgonary, and in April 1510 sent a golden rose to Henry VIII. The surrender of Bologna to the French in May 1511, and the attempt in which Louis XII secured the concurrence of the Emperor Maximilian to set up a council at Pisa enraged the Pope still more, and drew other princes to his aid. The Holy League was proclaimed at Rome on October 4th between the Pope and Ferdinand of Aragon, and Henry joined it on November 13th promising to make active war against France in the following spring. The recovery of Guyenne, which had now been lost to England for sixty years, was reward held out to him by the treaty. Accordingly, in May 1512, while the French seemed still to be making head in Italy, having on Easter Sunday cut to pieces the papal and Spanish forces at Ravenna, an expedition was dispatched to Spain under the Marquess of Dorset, for the invasion of Guyenne, in the hope of its being supported by Spanish troops. It landed in Biscay on June 7th, but it was even more unfortunate than Lord Darcy's expedition. No preparation had been made in Spain for its reception, not even by way of supplying the soldiers with victuals, or with carriage for their ordnance. They were exposed to the weather, and the diet and wines of Spain disagreed with their English habits of body. Moreover, while hundreds died of diarrhoea, the forces kept idle for months, expecting the Duke of Alva to join it, but Alva was engaged in Ferdinand's work in the conquest of Narve, in which he succeeded perfectly, 
and the only effect of the English expedition was to hamper the French in Italy, where they soon completely lost their footing. Dorset's troops at last mutinied, and at a council of war on August 28th resolved to return home, without leave, in fact, against orders. The king was very indignant, but was unable to punish where so many were in fault. It had been arranged that while Dorset sought to recover Guyenne, English ships were to keep the channel as far as Brest, and the Spaniards the sea thence to the Bay of Biscay. Sir Edward Howard was appointed Admiral of the English fleet on April 7th, and after cruising about the channel and chasing French fishing boats, he accompanied Dorset's fleet as far as Brest. He then landed on the Breton coast, burning towns and villages ruthlessly over a circuit of thirty miles, and returned home. But the Spanish fleet did not come to join the English until September, when it was really useless, and French ships were meanwhile got ready both in Normandy and Brittany, and placed under the command redoubted Brigant de Bordeaux, summoned hastily from the Mediterranean. Thus by August, when another expedition sailed from England for Brest Harbour, the French had a pretty fair squadron there, and on the 10th a fierce action took place between the two fleets. The regent, the largest vessel on the English side, grappled with her chief opponent, the Cordelier, called by the English the Great Carrack of Brest, till by some means both vessels took fire, and were totally consumed with the loss of nearly all their crews. Sir Thomas Canaviot, commander of the regent, was among the victims. The king at once determined to repair the loss of the regent by building a still larger ship called the Henry Grace de Dur, or the Great Harry, which was launched two years later. In April 1513, Sir Edward Howard again sailed to the entrance of Brest Harbour, intent on avenging Canavit's fate. He found drawn up in shallow water a line of French galleys, which rained shot and square bolts upon him from guns and crossbows. Putting himself in a row barge, he faced his tremendous fire and boarded Pregent's galley, while his men cast the anchor onto the galley's deck. But the cable was either let slip or cut by the French, and Sir Edward, left in the hands of the enemy, was thrust overboard and perished. The attack was foolhardy, but Howell's gallantry retrieved the honour of the English nation. For several months preparations had been made in progress for an invasion of France by the king in person. It may have been in order to prevent any possible conspiracy at home that the unhappy Earl of Suffolk, whose brother Richard de la Pole was now in the French king's service, was beheaded on April 30th, notwithstanding the promise given by Henry the Seventh that his life should be spared. The first portion of the invading army went over to Calais in the latter part of May, and the king himself landed there on June 30th, having left the queen behind him as regent in his absence. Siege was laid to the fortified city of Troyenne on June 22nd, but it still held out on August 4th when the king joined the besiegers. On the 11th he left the camp and had a meeting with the emperor Maximilian between Troyenne and Air in very foul weather, of which indeed there had been much already. Next day the Emperor visited the trenches and returned for a time to air. He was afterwards content, 
instead of joining the king under his own banner, to serve his company at the king's wages under the banner of St. George, for he was always glad of money, while his great military experience was unquestionably of service to the king. On the night of the 11th, Lion, king of arms, arrived with a message from James the Fourth, setting forth various complaints against England, requiring Henry to desist from the invasion of a country which was James's ally. To this an appropriate answer was next day returned by Henry. On the 16th the king removed his army to Gorengast in order to defeat any attempt on the part of the French who were mustering south of Troyne and victualling the place. They were presently descried, and after a brief encounter took to flight, leaving in the hands of the English some most illustrious prisoners, among whom were the Duke of Loganville and the renowned Chevalier Baynard. The engagement received the name of the Battle of the Spurs from the speedy flight of the French. A week later, on the 23rd, Trouraine surrendered. The fortifications which had made it so formidable were then blown up, and the invading army passed on to Trouigny, which likewise surrendered a month later on September 23rd. These conquests were not valuable to England unless she had an interest in Belgium. But Henry looked forward to the marriage of his sister Mary to young Charles of Castile, which, as we have seen, had been arranged in Henry the Seventh time the city of Trerenam as belonging to the house of Burgundy, was made over to the emperor, whose soldiers ruthlessly destroyed it by fire. On the way to Tourney, Henry paid a visit to Margaret of Savoy at Lille, which was within the territory of Flanders, and after the capture of the city, she returned the visit, bringing with her the young prince then in his fourteenth year. Yet another meeting was held at Lyle, where on October 17th it was arranged that the marriage should take place at Calais in the following year, in presence of the Emperor Margaret of Savoy, Henry VIII and Queen Catherine. Provisions were also made for the defence of Artois and Hanonault in the winter, and for the further prosecution of the war next year. The ungracious declaration of war by the Scotch king had not been unexpected. Notwithstanding his treaties with England, James had formed a new league with France in 1512, and had given most unsatisfactory answers as to his evident preparations for war to the English ambassador West, Bishop of Ely. Before embarking at Dover, Henry had accordingly conferred the command of the North upon Thomas, Earl of Surrey, who conducted the Queen back to London, and thence in the end of July proceeded to his charge. Even in August, the Scots made a raid into Northumberland under Hume, the Lord Chamberlain of Scotland, in which they came off so badly that they themselves called it the Ill Raid, for they were met by Sir William Bulmer and driven home with great slaughter and the loss of all their booty. But on the 22nd, James himself entered Northumberland with as large an army as he could collect, when Norham Castle, after a six days' siege, and raised it to the ground, after which he took some other fortresses. Hearing of this at Durham, Surrey advanced with the banner of Sir Cuthbert to Newcastle, where he altered musters from all the northern counties to be held on September 1st. On the 4th he dispatched a herald to the King of Scots, reproaching him with his bad faith, 
and offering to give him battle on the Friday following, September 9th. James awaited his attack on ground very well chosen. The deep river Till lay between the armies. But Surrey bade his vanguard with the ordnance cross it at Twizel Bridge near its junction with the Tweed, while the rear crossed at another point, threatening to cut off the retreat of the Scotch army. Hereupon the Scots made an onslaught, which for a time was successful, but the fortune of the day changed, and the invaders were disastrously defeated. The king and the flower of the Scottish nobility was left dead upon the field of Flodden. In reward for this victory, Surrey was some months later created Duke of Norfolk, and his son was made Earl of Surrey in his own right. The success of the English arms in France and in Scotland produced important results both abroad and at home. The disgrace which had attended Dorset's expedition to Spain was now more than wiped out. It was clear that even as a military power, England had to be reckoned with, but the belief still generally prevailed that she was an easy dupe. She had been doing the work of Ferdinand in Spain. In France she had been winning conquests for Maximilian, and by more than one treaty she had been subsidising that needy emperor really to keep him true to his engagements as to his grandson's marriage with Mary. Henry's military successes compelled scheming politicians to change their tactics. His father-in-law, Thurderland, did not relish them at all, for he had already made secret overtures for peace to France, nor had he ever loved the project of an English princess marrying Charles of Castile, which would have afforded Henry opportunities for interference in Spain and although in October 1513 his ambassador at Lyle made a treaty with the Emperor and Henry for continuing the war against France, the year could scarcely have run out before he had persuaded Maximilian to join him in coming to terms with the enemy and leaving England in the lurch. Thus, in the spring of the following year, the war was really between England and France only, and Admiral Pregent burned the small fishing village Brighthamstone, Brighton, while Wallop committed similar havoc on the coast of Normandy. End of section forty seven.